Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Don, and Dude. All right, this is the Album Nerds Podcast. I'm Dude, I got Andy and Don with me. Time to get bromantic, fellas. How y'all doing? Sounding good on that auto-tune, man. Thanks. Like <laughs> <laughs> should, have had, should have had Don on the vocals. They crushed it. Bromance. Bromance. That's <laughs> <laughs> soul. I like yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's saucy. Okay, so this is indeed the Album Nerds Podcast. We love albums. And each other. Album format. And each other. You're right. We're bros. And we love talking about it with each other, sharing it with y'all. And we have an incredible show for you today. We're going to be talking about three albums that touch on bromance. So additionally, on today's show, Don's going to be asking us a deep question. We're going to share what we're digging, some new releases, music-related media, and then we're going to spin the wheel of musical discovery to find out what we'll talk about next time. But this time, it's all about the bromances. That's what I'm talking about! Great popular music is often a result of creative partnerships. From Gilbert and Sullivan to Lennon and McCartney, men have joined forces and inspired each other to amazing heights. These relationships often begin with mutual excitement. Then, like any romance, they can become challenging to maintain. Some of them even end in ugly divorces. Still, bromances have been at the center of wonderful works of music. Today, each of us will present an album fueled by a bromance. Mm. <laughs> that bromance power. And this show is fueled by bromance, which uh, is what makes it so special. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, not too difficult to find artists, bros that have been together for a long time. So how'd you guys do on your search for the manse. Well, yes, the manse. The manse is plentiful <laughs> in the music industry. Uh, I'll throw out a couple that I was enjoying. Uh, the Black Keys was kind of like one of the more modern day bromances like, sure. that came to mind. Listen to uh, The Rubber Factory and Thick Freakness in the okay. early 2000s. It's good stuff. Uh, I also listened to Run the Jewels. Mm-hmm. Killer Mike and LP been together for quite a while now, put out some good hip hop records. I do enjoy the jewels. I know you do. I know you do. And then uh, you guys remember Ween from back in the early to mid 90s? Push the little daisies and make them come up. Push the little daisies yeah. and make them come up. <laughs> they were the uh, hipster band of yeah. choice, I'd say. And then, you know, if it was like, oh, grunge alternative, please. I listen to Ween. Yeah. <laughs> kind of irreverent, kind of nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Don? Well, you know, a famous duo, Simon and Garfunkel. Hello, Donald, my old friend. Yes. Uh, <laughs> they, they started out, actually, I mean, they were recording, you know, pretty young in, in life. But they their recording career was, was pretty short. Over the years, they've kind of gotten back and forth and, you know. They're, yeah, well, whenever, whenever cha-chings were needed, they would uh, find a way to get along for a little while. <laughs> Something that bridge was reconstructed very yeah, quickly. Yeah. Yeah. 
but yeah, you know, Bridge Over Trouble. Like a bridge yeah. over troubled finances. That's a great album that we'll probably do at some point. Um, I also thought about Sounds of Silence, which was the first one where they really, you know, went folk rock. Another duo I thought of was an uh, industrial band called um, Nights or Ebb, um, an album f- called Showtime uh, from 1989, uh, produced by Flood, um, is, was interesting. Cool. Yeah, I, uh, my British buddies, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, I'm find, trying to find a way in to get that album on the show. But You had your way, man. You had your way. <laughs> I had it, but uh, brushed a little too close to the sound on some of our other picks, so I went in a different direction. Them Crooked Vultures, a trio of Dave Grohl, Josh Homie, and John Paul Jones. I thought about that one because Dave Grohl and Josh Homie are homies, and they're longtime <laughs> bros. And uh, an album that uh, came out last year, Extreme 6, you know, the More Than Words dudes, they came out with their sixth album, a lot of guitar awesomeness and uh nuno betancourt and gary sharone longtime friends kind of band fell apart for a while but they kept in touch and they've never been enemies so they are bros those are some of the things i thought about but uh you'll find out what we really picked here now you choo choo choose me Theirs was the sound of California dreams, of endless summers and perfect waves, where the girls and boys were blonde, brown, and never had jobs. For a fleeting moment, Jan and Dean lived their own kind of California dream. Even quicker, it was gone. Oh, so dramatic. Doesn't that sound sort of idyllic and then just... That's when they hit dead man's curve. (laughs) Yeah, literally, in this case. (laughs) All right, for my bromance selection, we are indeed talking about Jan and Dean. Who and who? Jan and Dean, buddy. Surf City, man. I was just being one of the listeners. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) And their seventh studio album... For the surf rap pop duo from Los Angeles, California, let's play the title cut. This is A Little Old Lady from Pasadena. Yeah, I remember like that song a lot growing up here on the LA station. I kind of thought it was the Beach Boys, to be honest. Yeah, but. I think that's a lot of people's... <laughs> That's that's uh, why I posed the question, who and who? Because they, <laughs> they've kind of been accidentally erased, I think. To some degree, yeah. Kind of monopolized by the popularity of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Wish the Beach Boys could have traded Mike Love for Jan Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Jan and Dean and who they were. Grew up in the Los Angeles area, went to high school together at a school called Emerson Junior High. Um, they had lockers next to each other on the football team. Supposedly, they sang harmonies together in the showers. Ooh-wee-oo. You know, That's it's what, like the 50s. It's probably pretty common to do such a thing. That's what dude yeah. and I used to do when we lived oh, together. Oh, yeah. There you yeah, go. except it was just a single bathtub, not a <laughs> locker room shower. <laughs> That's a little different. <laughs> Yeah, so they kind of on a whim, I think it was on a dare, you know, started uh, a band together. 
just happened to know a, a local producer, got in, got to do some recordings, got a couple hits under their belt. So much in a few of their popular songs you may recognize. Probably the most popular would be uh, Surf City, which they would record with Brian Wilson in, in the mid-60s. Uh, they still mm-hmm. had a song called Dead Man's Curve, which would kind of come back to haunt them a few years after its release. Drag City, Sidewalk Surfing, s- some pretty big hits for them. Now, given the era, Drag City was about drag racing cars, correct? Not like RuPaul's Drag Race? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, cars were a big thing in the 60s. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. These, sur- these surf dudes, it was like, okay, well, we can't do any more surf songs. Let's do stuff about s- cars. <laughs> yeah. Right. ooh ooh <laughs> All right. My clickbait headline for... This album is Little Old Lady's License Suspended Takes Up Surfing. As much as this this album thematically deals with old women driving muscle cars, it really is a surf rock record. Primarily the sound, you know, is dealing with that that style. And I think they do a really good job of of capturing that sound of, of you know, the early to mid-60s. Uh, at which point, Jan was in a, a bad car accident just, just down the street from the song they were writing the Dead Man's Curve song about. Mm-hmm. Suffered some brain damage and eventually to come back to continue his recording career uh, with Dean, but never really was the same after that. But it was cool. They they stayed on tour for a few decades, you know, up into almost the 2000s. Why don't we play another cut from the record? This is called Memphis. She's the only one who'd phone me here from Memphis, Tennessee. Her home is on the south side. And that one kind of flirted a little bit with the British Invasion type of sound. Makes sense. Uh, I didn't realize it was a, a, a Chuck Berry cover. And uh, it's uh, interesting lyrically because the, the narrator is speaking to a long distance operator trying to find the number of a girl named Marie who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. But in the, the final verse, it's revealed that Marie is uh, six years old. And you're like, what? And But it's like his daughter. So it's like his ex-wife has taken the, uh, uh, the daughter away. So kind of a... Okay. Cool story, bro. <laughs> yeah, I was afraid that was going in a bad yeah. direction. <laughs> <laughs> so my clickbait headline for the Jan and Dean record, Don vows not to mention Brian Wilson because Jan and Dean deserve a moment. Mm. Um, <laughs> Let's so, see if you can live up know, to that promise. Yeah. Yeah, well, probably. you already mentioned Mike Love, so that's, that's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess I, I didn't realize, you know, that these guys, you know, deserved so much credit, uh, I think for this, this California sound. You know, I mean, it seems like, you know, Jan Barry was a, you know, real songwriter and, and he produced, you know, the albums. So th- I, I guess I had maybe a, a image in my head of just kind of two random dudes being thrown in a studio to record surfing right. stuff yeah. to, to meet good looking Cal- surfer guys. Yeah. And it, it sounds like, you know, these, these are real musicians, real, uh, real songwriters. And it's good. I mean, on the surface, it's hard to, you know, tell the difference between a Jan and Dean song and, uh, and an early Beach Boys. Yeah. Yeah. Surfing's not a sport. It's a way of life. It's a way of looking at that wave and saying, hey, bud, let's party. <laughs> <laughs> this California thing is 
It's so interesting. I mean, looking back at it or, you know, hearing it from, you know, today's ears, it just sounds really silly and, and hokey. But I think so much of the, of the imagery in this music really shapes my view of California and yeah. what mm. and what maybe the early 1960s were, were like, you know, mm-hmm. this idea of hot rods and, you know, people surfing and skateboarding down the boardwalk. Right. Yeah, totally. Personally, I, I love that sort of mental space to hang out and it sounds like such a fun place to be and i mean these guys were probably growing up in like one of the funnest times to be a teenager in america you know with like these huge hot rods living with all these beautiful women in california just sounds like a nice nice place to be it's kind of a contrast from like the British invasion because I feel like the Beatles and the Stones came and they're like covered in industrial soot or something, you know, there's yeah. like this, this darkness <laughs> that comes from the UK. <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite of that. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about the idyllic California lifestyle. This, this track here, not surfing on the water, but surfing on the sidewalk. <laughs> so you gotta bust your buns instead of catching a wave uh, the beach boys version of this particular tune yeah. which i thought was interesting now it's unfortunate jan had written a song called marsha 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 but unfortunately it didn't make the album and the brady bunch later wow, stole it. Man. Good, good one marsha 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 uh yeah so <laughs> that song was uh, music by Brian Wilson, lyrics by Roger Christian, recorded in 1964, and it it's you know it's cool that it's about skateboarding. I mean that definitely is another very California thing. I mean it took over the entire country eventually, but it did feel like a California thing even in the 80s um, when I was a kid. Yeah, I watched a really interesting clip of American Bandstand of them introducing skateboarding to the audience. They had to nice. like, explain what it was, and it was like the most rudimentary skateboard you could possibly sure. imagine. Cool. Yeah, so uh, that song, again, Catch a Wave with new lyrics, but uh, cool, you know, cool lyrics, and they were pushing boundaries by saying buns in a song, and uh, now we would just say <laughs> ass, but, uh, you know. You do what you do. Yeah. Yeah. My clickbait headline for this album, California Boys Bromance Ignites a Surf Rock Craze. However, the good vibrations don't last long thanks to serious competition. And I think that the Beach Boys' largeness and Brian Wilson, I can say his name, his creativity and drive to go beyond and uh, the surf stuff did did allow them to continue longer when the surf rock sound kind of started fizzling by the late 60s. So they have been a little bit erased. Now, when I was a kid, I I knew about them. My dad told me stories about them and the car accident. And I saw them performing uh, at a Beach Boys concert that was broadcast on PBS. And so I knew a little bit about them before this, but not much. Well, you know, I think they're worthy of a little more digging. Um I really came to like this record quite a bit, and they have a couple other ones from this time period that are also equally as good, I would say. I mean, they really really were focused on making hits. That's kind of like how they made money and got their popularity. So there are, you know, hits and misses, but I think overall, uh, Jen and Dean, there's some good, good, fun songs, you know. If you're looking for something to take you back to that simpler time in the sunshine in California, check out The Little Old Lady from Pasadena. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. 
If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. We were two kids from a nondescript suburb of Liverpool, both working class, both with no money, who had a hobby that was trying to emulate German imported records that even our best friends thought were utterly awful. <laughs> right, well, my, uh, my bromance record comes from Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, generally known as, as OMD. This is their third studio album called Architecture and Morality, released in November 1981. OMD, the, the creative core uh, is uh, Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys, uh, who were they met in primary school and started messing around with electronic sounds and stuff, made a bunch of albums uh, into the, the late 1980s, split up for a while, uh, and then got back together in the in the early 2000s, still going strong. So um, definitely a, a bromance. Let's hear a, a cut. This is called Joan of Arc, Made of Orleans. What is with Joan of Arc and these British dudes, man? Yeah. <laughs> Morrissey before Morrissey. <laughs> um, yeah, I like the pulsing kind of waltz in that song. So side B of the album starts with two consecutive songs uh, about Joan of Arc. Uh, so that's the that's the second one. The uh, the main the main melody part there. The no can't hit <laughs> the, that, that's uh that's played on the the mellotron do you guys know much about the mellotron it's like an old-timey keyboard uh that actually uses tape Air, right or, oh. no it uses analog tape um so like you would record an orchestra and so when you play the key it's actually playing a, a, a tape and then wow. the, huh. the tape would degrade and stuff and so it would start to sound warbly and anyway mm, it does yeah yep. old-fashioned technology my uh, clickbait headline is Synth Pop Duo Creates First Great Synth Album. Wow, that's bold. Yes. So this is, you know, 1981. It's, um, I mean, you know, it's pretty early on in the, the synth era. We did that uh, Gary Newman record, The Pleasure mm -hmm. Principle, which came out in 1979. This is very different. You know, a lot of synth pop at the time was either sort of going in this like sci-fi direction where they're singing about robots taking over and stuff. Science. Yep. Um, or, or you know, people were going in more of like a, a dance pop direction. Uh, and this album is is neither of those. It's dramatic. There's real, I, I think, romance and, and passion in this album. Um, but it's not really dancey. I mean, there's some dancey rhythms in there. And it's not really sci-fi, although it has sort of a dark, melancholy feel, kind of a, an industrial sound. Well, let's uh, let's play another cut. This is the the first track on the album called "The New Stone Age." So yeah, the new Stone Age, the opening track, surprised me quite a bit because I was expecting, you know, the only OMD I knew was "If You Leave," blah blah blah, you know. So I was I was expecting something very croony, and I was uh, surprised by this Robert Smithish curish kind of treatment. Uh, the whole album doesn't continue that tradition, but it is a nice opener, and it did uh, get me interested as this uh, as this album began. I like the jagged guitar work of that song. 
Andy McCluskey. Is that the yep. vocalist? Uh, his vocals are emotional and broken. I like that. It's like the samples and the jittery sound. Maybe it's coming from the tape <laughs> deg- yeah. degradation. I like that. It was, it's cool. My clickbait headline, OMD, more like OMG, <laughs> raw synth pop won't let go at any price. Poor Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's good. Yeah, so all in all, the album was more interesting than I expected. Is that real drumming, Don? Yeah, well, it's it's a mix. There is a, a drummer named Malcolm Holmes who I, I think they often threw his drum parts on top of a drum machine or something. So okay, there are some real drums. Yeah, some of it sounded real. It sort of sinks into this sort of slog as the album continues, but it's not unpleasant. But they even sounded a little bit bored by the by the end. I thought. <laughs> But it, it was nice to experience this band. You've talked about them before. I never knew anything but the one single from Pretty in Pink soundtrack. So it's pretty big discography, but I'll probably jump in those puddles, see what else they did. All right. Well, let's uh, let's hear a little more. Uh, here's a, another cut from side two called Georgia. This refers to the Georgia that in the former Soviet Union, not the one in the United States. But Georgia's still on their mind, yeah? <laughs> it's like got peaches, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah, like those gloomy Cold War peaches, the can in the can. <laughs> it's more like a potato than a peach. <laughs> Pretty interesting record from my perspective. I'm not really sure what to make of it yet. Like some of Don's selections, it's got a lot of a lot of depth, a lot of nuance going on here, and I'm still uh, trying to figure it out. But my clickbait headline is kind of just nonsense. Local man found naked and unconscious after attempting the so-called orchestral maneuver. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Good, good title for a band, I must say, and good title for the record. I, I do, I appreciate both of those kind of obscure and uh, just intriguing sounding. Yeah, I mean, as Dude was alluding to, I think the pacing is probably the weakest part of this record. Um, but it's not to say there aren't some really interesting things that happen kind of around the, the edges for me. I really enjoyed the opening, and I really enjoyed the closing. I thought there was some interesting moments in the middle, but did feel like they kind of it loses steam, I guess, halfway through. Mm-hmm. That uh, Georgia, though, does add a little boop, 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 boop flavor mm-hmm. to it. That, that, that's what I thought the whole thing was going to be like. But it was nice to have it mm-hmm. as a part of the album. Yeah. It's it's wild because like, they, they have like flashes of like a really catchy, kind of like almost a pop sensibility to them. And then mm-hmm. they just kind of like abandon it in the next minute and go back to like the more electronic sort of ex- experimental kind of you know vibe, which I appreciate that. And it's cool to know it's in like the repertoire. I just I felt like such the beginning the middle was so I think when you change your sound up so much across the course of a record you start to lose your identity a little bit or at least for me like I didn't really get a strong feel for who they were as a band I guess I think they album. were I think that's what they were trying to do and it that's what it felt like to me that some of this was experimentation so this is their third album right down so yep. did they really define their sound at this point or were they still kind of working things out yeah, I mean, they, they didn't really hit in the United States until years later, but, um, in Britain, they had success, um, from their, their first two albums. 
each album is is pretty different from the last. So they were always trying to do something different. Um, and this is That's definitely cool. more experimental. This is a period in their career. They, they did two really experimental albums uh, in a row, um, this and Dazzle Ships, uh, before they went in a real pop direction. It's, it's interesting to hear like these these groups that do go in the more pop direction later, to, like this here, like, the, where they come from, sort of like the mm-hmm. experimental vibe, like, no, it's all kind of mixed together. And these two people is, is kind of awesome. Yeah, one thing I I like, I, even the more experimental tracks like uh, like Sealand, you know, it's just sort of this dark brooding track with all these like industrial noises and stuff like that. But it's still musical. So like, I feel like they never go too far with, with an experiment. You know, they, they come back to, you know, to, to some melody, um, which I think makes it palatable. That's one thing I'll say for OMD. I think they've just always had a good sense for a, a hook and a, and a melody. Even in their most experimental moments, they can, you know, still sort of come back to that. Yeah. Anyway, well, I mean, this is a big record for me. Um, it would be in the the Don Hall of Fame. Uh, I'll refrain from nominating it for the, the Album Nerds Hall of Fame, but I, I do think it's a, it's, it's a significant synth album you know i would say one of the most important ones of all time please check it out omd with architecture and morality excuse me i'd like to ask you a few questions now deep questions by don so we're talking about bromances in the the world of music Um, what other creative or professional bromances led to great achievements andy uh well i mean the first one that came to mind i mean i don't know about great achievements necessarily but uh spongebob and patrick Mm. would be probably my fave too yeah they they've inspired youth to go for it professionally (laughs) and go serve burgers a crabby patty (laughs) (laughs) that's right very aspirational Oh, they have such a great friendship, I, and they always support each other, and I, I, I do sincerely enjoy them together. Uh, the other one that came to mind, kind of opposite end of the spectrum, would be Holmes and Watson. Mm-hmm. Also fictional characters, but I think have a good rapport, a good give and take, you know, a good uh, chemistry between them, which I think is important. Yeah, Watson makes Holmes a better man. Makes him look smart, at least. <laughs> All right, how about you, dude? I went with a pretty high profile one i'm going with ben affleck and matt damon i got a number how do you like them nice they have been buddies since they were like eight and ten years old they met in school i think i guess as they started to pursue their career they had a shared bank account to save money for auditions and stuff and they would deposit the money in it and really and work on that romance i know the duo worked on their first project together as extras on field of dreams but they went on to be in a bunch of movies together, work on each other's projects, Goodwill Hunting, where they co-wrote the screenplay. That's the biggest, I'd say. But yeah, uh, on to Super Bowl commercials for Dunkin' Donuts, where they kind of make <laughs> fools of themselves. So that bromance is still brewing. And uh, through superstardom, ups and downs, Benefer, all of it, they uh, they continue to bromance each other. So. I like that. Very one. inspirational. Well, I remember we had to watch a movie in uh, like 10th grade bio class about Watson and Crick who like f- found the like DNA mm, thing. Of course. Or you get, they bros? Oh, yeah. Watson, Watson and, and Crick. Crick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
also thought of um, this one was romanticized by Hollywood, so I don't know really what it was like. But Woodward and Bernstein, you know, who basically mm. yeah. um, uncovered the the Watergate scandal. You know, in the movie, it's Robert Redford and and Dustin Hoffman, and of course they're like total opposites. Um, you know, Woodward goes by the book, you know, and um, Bernstein smoking cigarettes and you know just breaking all the rules. <laughs> but together, that marriage, you know. Um, ends up you know changing uh changing the american political spectrum mm. uh, yeah those are some very deep picks down yeah. i like mm-hmm. it very heady all right well what other creative professional bromances led to great achievements let us know hit us on instagram facebook or leave a comment on our website albumnerds.com holy dave growly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a person I wish I was in a bromance with, Dave Grohl, and I think a, a lot of <laughs> rock fans probably feel the same. It's like a one-way bromance here, I think. <laughs> I did not pick a Foo Fighters album, even though him and Taylor had quite the bromance going, because I've done that enough times. So instead, I went with Queens of the Stone Age, formed in 1996 in Palm Desert, California, by Josh Homie. What's up, Homie? formerly of Caius. And he and Dave sparked up a friendship in like 1992. And and Dave Grohl appears as the drummer for the album Songs for the Deaf that came out August 27th, 2002. Why don't we listen to a little bit of the big one, No One Knows. At that time, it was so nice to hear Dave Grohl back on the on the skins. He's definitely doing some drumming there. Yeah, the, those drum fills, I think, just work so well for the song and kind of establish what this band was and what their sound was, for this album anyway. It's the only one he was on the entire thing and was touring with them and such. Uh, at the time, I was a little concerned that Foo Fighters might be dead because it, it kind of got a little stale and maybe this was... Uh, Dave needed a new bromance to stoke those creative fires. Uh, the clickbait headline. I chose to describe this album. Grohl gets behind Kit to explore bromance with Homie. Beautiful desert music is made. So yeah, the grooves get you in the gut. At the time in particular, in the music scene, the rock music scene, this was like revitalizing and fun. And uh, it was a big deal. I really enjoyed it at the time. But was this something you were into or just a passing fancy? Yeah, I remember making a, making a splash at the time. Obviously, it was on the radio quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I remember my rock friends being fairly excited by the prospect of this band. Yeah, it was actually coming out of that era... Like Godsmack, Creed, and uh, you know, rock was you know getting pretty pretty boring, and this felt you know a, a little a little fresh. <laughs> I was actually at a Target, walking past the music section, and on the TV screen, this video was on for No One Knows, and I went and bought the CD from Target right then. From just watching the video to buying the CD, yep. that's. I was, wow. like, I was like, Dave Grohl's playing drums again? I'm in. So, <laughs> <laughs> How do I buy this? Nice work, Target. All right, so uh, why don't we listen to a little bit more of the album? Why don't we just, uh, I don't know, go with the flow. It's the second single off the album... I always thought it was about just kind of like being 
laid back and not really caring. Have that West Coast sort of vibe this band has. Um, but I think it's, I think reading the lyrics, it's more really about people who go through relationships without really committing themselves, which I thought was pretty mm. interesting. Maybe a little bit more depth to these songs than I originally thought. My clickbait headline for Songs of the Deaf is Queens of the Stone Age announced new film project, Movies for the Blind. <laughs> um, I, I do feel like this album, you know, it, for me, it put them on the map, also, you know, just in terms of the rock landscape at the times. But I think looking back on it, they really did have a distinct sound. And it, it I think a lot of it is, does come from the drumming and just kind of the rhythm and the grooves yeah. they get into as a, as a duo or as a group, I guess really make this stand out and do have kind of a certain distinctness to it that you don't often hear in the 2000s. So yeah, I, I enjoy this record a fair amount, I would say. Yeah, a lot of different flavors in terms of like their lineup. Uh, Over the years, yeah. Yeah, Homie and Oliveri and Grohl and Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees and the you know three people providing vocals throughout mm-hmm. does change things up. But then there's that whole concept, the radio station stuff. Yeah, there's little um, little skits. Yeah, yeah, it's like you're supposed to be tuning up and down the dial as you're driving through, you know, California deserts. I think, and that's a cool idea. But when an album is this long, and again, it's one of those that I think is a victim of the time, where of album bloat, f- trying to fill a CD instead yeah. of just focusing yeah. on the songs. Yeah, totally agree. I think the last couple of songs kind of felt a little throwaway to me as well, but. The beginning of the record's pretty stacked, so. Yeah, there are plenty of standouts. Uh, you think I ain't worth a dollar, but I feel like a millionaire. It's funny, that mos- that Mosquito song, right? That's supposed to be like a hidden track, but it's like six minutes long. Like usually yeah, the hidden tracks are like 30 <laughs> yeah, seconds yeah, like or something. No, no, yeah. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> but I really, I really dug the like hanging tree. It sounds like the Grim Reaper is singing. That's Mark Lanigan's voice. But I thought that was a, it's just a cool groove. And Yeah, I like that track too. I almost yeah. picked that one. So why don't we listen to a little bit of from Songs for the Death. This one's a song for the dead. That's where that stoner rock <laughs> comes into play. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, that this song, uh, I mean, it felt like kind of the, maybe the most epic song on on the record and it's just a it's a pretty relentless rocker there was a point you know i was listening on on headphones and i i got like really uncomfortable almost like i I was gonna have a seizure or something just like the (laughs) you know when it when when it starts getting really fast again at the end um yeah i'm like like, "Uh oh (laughs) Uh, but i suppose that's it i don't know is that a good thing in the in the world of uh metal i think so i think so yeah it's working yeah so that's i mean that's a really cool track i I was actually surprised by um how heavy this this album is because i think i the only song i knew from the album was no one knows yeah and uh yeah these guys these guys can can really rock oh yeah we had to spice it up for this episode so i had to i had to pick something with a little chutzpah (laughs) so my uh my clickbait headline is band sets out to prove rock can still be interesting succeeds somewhat (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know, yeah, you guys have already, you know, said, said a lot of this. I, I think, I, I do think they have a interesting sound. It is, I, I think, somewhat innovative, uh, you know, particularly at the time. Um, so yeah, I, I like the, the album a lot. It, like you guys said, it just, it runs a little long. You know, I think the, the concept, even though a cool idea, um, you know, it doesn't really add anything to the, to the album. Yeah. I, I think also it didn't age well because a lot of the youth may not really yeah. do a lot of FM dial spinning on the radio either. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But just the, I mean, the the rhythms, you know, really, I think, set it apart from other mm-hmm. rock a, at the time. And yeah, I mean, if that's just Dave Grohl's influence, then, you know, good for him. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, I think the, the, the love between them creatively, between him and Josh Homme in particular, like I, I really do think that that was a factor here. Uh, working on a project together for the first time, and it did add some something special. Yeah. Well, sparks were flying. Yep, I like I like their other albums as well, but this is probably my favorite of them. The one thing I will warn people of if you're listening to this album for the first time, especially if you're listening to the uh, unedited version, Six Shooter kind of takes it, things in a, street, a screamy new direction that you may not be expecting on your first spin. So just throwing it out there, although it is a, a cool song with uh, Nick Oliveri on the lead vocals. Okay, so uh, that was the bromance that is Dave Grohl and Josh Homme in the band Queens of the Stone Age with the very cool, very fun rock album Songs for the Deaf. Check it out. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So, bros, we've been uh, stuck in a, a web of romance. Have we? Uh, have we been digging anything else? Yes, yes. I have some new releases here. I'd like to briefly share with the group one indie rock duo I'll mention here by the name of Ducks Limited. They have a record called Harm's Way. Uh, yeah, it's kind of jangly indie rock from the Toronto-based duo there, Ducks Limited. Also mention a record from a woman-led collective from Mali, named of Les Amazones de Afrique. You've been practicing. The album is entitled. Uh, <laughs> Moscow Denis, I think is how you would say it. Moscow Den. I don't know, I'm not even sure. How would you guys say that? Moscow Dance. Dance. <laughs> I think it's dance. Dance? Okay. Don't say. I don't know. Check out the latest album. It's a pretty interesting mix of dance and electronica, along with you know, the obvious world music, African sounds. Enjoying it so far myself. Sounds like an elephant. <laughs> yeah, I know so too. <laughs> That's, a bit, yeah. That's cool. What's that like for a whole album experience? So, I mean, the one song is pretty cool, but is it is it easy to get lost or can you keep up with it? I think it's quite varied from what I recall. There's quite different okay. types of sounds on there. It's not all just kind of glitchy electronic. Yeah, for those of us that might be jumping into something new, if we check it out, just one. It helps that. if you're from Molly or on Molly. Hey. <laughs> Nice one. Um, and real quick, uh, we have a new release from uh, the UK punk rock group Idols. The album is called Tank with a G. <laughs> it's their sixth album. Uh, it sounds a little different than their past work. Maybe a little more somber, a little less energetic from us, my take. Kind of still has that little bit of a Clash vibe, which is part of what I liked about what they were doing. So definitely have to check that one out. I was hoping Billy Idol, like in his kids, had you know started a family group. <laughs> 
Well, I've actually found something new that I uh, thought Wham. was kind of interesting. Yeah. So a group called Granddaddy, who apparently has existed forever, but you know, not on my radar at all. They have a new album called uh, Blue Wave, uh, which I, I spent a little time with and uh, sounds pretty good. Granddaddy Misty. Mm. <laughs> How about you, dude? Yeah, so I uh, Blackberry Smoke, a favorite of mine, got an 84 on Metacritic for their album Be Right Here. It came out February of 2024, produced by Dave Cobb. Uh, Drink. (laughs) Sort of a uh, southern rock, black rosy kind of thing. And uh, they've consistently put out good records, and this one is as enjoyable as any of the others. So go check that one out. Would you guys uh, be smoking the blackberries? <laughs> yeah, I listened to it when it came out. It sounded a lot like uh, what they sound like before. Yep. Also going to come back to Extreme 6 that I mentioned at the top of the show. It's their sixth studio album. It's kind of a return to the hard rock form. Sort of velvet revolvery throughout the album. Uh, but Nuno Betancourt's guitar solos are insane on this record. So it's worth checking out. Jesus. Sounds like Van Halen. Jeez. Ooh. Yeah. Damn. But this one goes on. But uh, yeah, definitely check the album out. Don't know if they'll ever make uh, make the show full blown. So I wanted to make sure and uh, get the word out on this one. Well, what are you digging? Let us know. <laughs> just, just roll with it, bro. Just let it happen. Uh, what are you digging? Let us know on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and on albumnerds.com. It will be a discovery of extraordinary value. Well, it's about that time on the show when I'm reminded of the great American boxer Muhammad Ali, mm. who famously said, Friendship is the hardest thing in the world to explain. It's not something you learn in school, but if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, you haven't really learned anything. Wow, it doesn't even rhyme. Come on, he's a boxer, not a poet. Yes, he is a poet. He was a poet. <laughs> All right, that's true. <laughs> Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, my friend. All right, it's with that bromance message in mind that we bring out my friend and yours, Wadbot, to see what we'll be listening to next week. True musical discovery will be yours with a little luck of the Irish. Next time, you will be exploring albums by Irish artists and bands. May you live as long as you want. And never want as long as you live. Okay. <laughs> Siri with the Irish accent. <laughs> <To do it. laughs> okay. So the Emerald Isles, right? That's what people call Ireland. Mm. So big. That's cool. There's plenty of awesome Irish artists. So look forward to, to that. Lots of fun stereotypes we can play up. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the accents will be prevalent. <laughs> yep. I'll bring me lucky charms. <laughs> God. <laughs> Just a quick reminder, we do have an ongoing Album Nerds Hall of Fame vote in progress. Go to our website, albumnerds.com, as well as Instagram and Facebook at Album Nerds. Cast your vote for Meatloaf's Bend Out of Hell. Do you think the album belongs in our Hall of Fame? Sound off. So again, does Bad Out of Hell belong in the Album Nerds Hall of Fame? What's your favorite bromance record? What else are you listening to? 
Leave a comment on our website or email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Album Nerds. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you once again for listening to the Album Nerds podcast. We'll catch you next time. Irish style. Is that with a little bit of whiskey? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next week. Do you have to let it linger? Do you have to? Do you have to? Do you have to let it linger? Oh, I am such a fool for you. Uh, <laughs> you guys are just straight up fools, man. Zombie! Zombie! Okay. <laughs> I pity the fool that's still listening to this thing. It's not Irish. <laughs> <laughs>